Hey, uh, so um, a funny thing happened to me this morning. I was uh, working away on my computer at 2am and then the thing happened that no preacher ever wants to see happen. As I'm opening up my file, just to check a few things, what I realise is what has been saved back. Friends of mine who are dying at this point, don't die, it'll be fine. What I check back is now my file is a series of... uh, percentage signs and hashtags and numbers and it's like oh dear that's fine because we're only talking about the book of revelation nothing could be more straightforward so here we are i've got a few notes and we're all going to join into this together as we journey merrily into the book of revelation thankfully uh the theme for today is um enduring hope so i hope too much not too much enduring but a lot, lot, lots of hope uh, will be uh, happening this morning. Um, so as we um, think about this um, issue, um, this kind of topic of hope, I'm reminded of a guy, um, a famous um, psychologist, Viktor Frankl, who wrote a number of books. He was um, in the Nazi uh, war camps, and he survived all of that. And he wrote a number of incredible books, um, most of them actually centered around hope. One of the things he discovered is that, in fact, hope is so central to human beings. He talked about the way that our limbic system, which is the very thing that kind of holds a lot of our kind of emotional architecture together, um, that is, in fact, um, very much core and tied to hope. And then when people lose hope, then, in fact, the limbic system becomes slightly disordered. And this comes out in physiological symptoms uh, also. You know, hope is absolutely central to what it means to be a human being. Hope matters. And for many of us today, this kind of makes sense of why in the Western world there's this kind of ambient sense of anxiety seems to be rising to the surface. Anyone detecting the anxiety that's in the air? Yeah, there is a bit of anxiety, right? As, many of, as we're kind of detecting the way in which um, the, kind of the Western narrative doesn't seem to be the software that we've been using for ages, really is, doesn't seem to be working as well as we used to think it did. There's a kind of way of thinking about Western culture that goes like this. The equation is uh, democracy uh, plus technology plus ever-increasing amounts of human freedom equals inevitable progress. And it's this inevitable progress side that we're just all kind of worrying about. Uh, This side of COVID, uh, this side of, you know, what's going on in the Ukraine, it just doesn't feel like um, this equation is holding true. And for many people, there's just a sense of on the other side of coming out of lockdown, and it's just kind of sense of like of lostness. I don't know, where are we? And for some people, there's a kind of a sense of hopelessness uh, beginning to uh, kind of creep in. Now, for many of us, of course, we're human beings. We're porous creatures, right? We pick up on the culture that we are swimming in. And that's right to do that. We're not supposed to be living in a world with kind of spiritual noise-canceling headphones on, right? That's fine that we're kind of part of that. But it's not inevitable, and we don't have to be a part of everything about that. So what the Bible says, and what was revealed in the book of Revelation, is that actually hope is not determined by a certain set of political arrangements. Hope is not determined um, by a set of actually cultural assumptions or things that need to hold true for all times. Actually, hope is centered on a person, and in fact, 
the person of Jesus. Um, there's a wonderful Hebrew word um, that talks about hope, and it talks about it as actually as a word picture, and it's the word picture of um, of, of a cord. Hope is a cord that is being stretched. It's that experience of that of stretchedness, but it's actually not just only the experience of stretchedness. It's actually that sense of confidence of being stretched because it's tied to a person. And so the hope that's talked about in the Bible, the hope that's revealed in the book of Revelation, is that our world has actually been tied to the person of Jesus. And therefore, we can have real hope. There's a sense of real safety. There's a sense of real participation in the world for its good. And that good will last because, in fact, the hope of the world is not tied to our circumstances. It's not tied to our performance. We're participating in something of what uh, Jesus is doing in the world, and particularly the resurrected Jesus. I want to, um, in a moment, I'm going to invite, actually we'll do that, Mari, if you'd like to come on up. She's going to read to us a passage from Revelation, and then I just want to pick up on that and anchor that back into where we began this whole journey, um, which was in Revelation 4 and 5 and this throne room scene. So, over to you, Mari. The reading today is from the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verses 7 to 17. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, Don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll. Worship God. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll, because the time is near. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. So we're camping out in the book of Revelation for the next uh, four weeks. And if you haven't kind of stumbled your way uh, into the book of Revelation, I mentioned this last week, but there's just a couple of things to keep in mind. One is keep it away from the kids. To be honest, this is a book that's full of like, you know, scary images. There's lots of blood. There's lots of violence. Um, you know, if this dual child starts reading this book, they are never, ever going to sleep. If the key goal of parenting is to get the children to sleep so you can get back to Netflix. The book of Revelation is going to completely upset that routine. Just, just wait till they're older. So that's the first thing. And the second thing to say is the book of Revelation records a dream that John um, had. He was caught up in a vision. And so what is recorded uh, is um, the record of a dream. So this is not just like a story that has a beginning, a middle, and end. What John is doing is actually laying out a huge canvas, a huge picture of what it's going to uh, look like um, when God eventually does what God wants to do. And the second thing is, is that the apocalyptic literature um, as 
communicates this kind of vision um, in a number of different ways. And the first way it does it is it's underpinned by the biblical worldview that heaven, again, we use this rug to indicate heaven, that heaven and earth are in fact not miles apart. But in fact, they are two sides of this one dimension called reality. And the idea that is that um, heaven and earth are not uh, miles apart. In fact, heaven and earth overlap and interact with one another. And so the second point of that is, in fact, that heaven is the control room for what happens on earth. And so what the book of Revelation does is it reveals to the readers and to the hearers and to John on earth, you know, it reveals them. There's like there's stuff going on here. It's problematic. And John reveals them what the actual root cause of that is by pulling back the curtain that separates heaven and earth and gives these readers a perspective, a heavenly perspective of what's going on. So that's um, a key part of the book of Revelation. That's what the word apocalypse means. It doesn't mean the end of the world as we're going to talk about it today, but rather the word apocalypse is just the bog standard Greek word that means to uncover or reveal. And what it reveals is something that's already there and present, but just not seen by uh, the human eye or not perceived by the human eye. Um, and so the, the other thing is, is that, as I mentioned, is the um, apocalypse or the book of Revelation, it uses a lot of kind of imagery. And uh, this was very common to the people of the day, but it's actually not kind of alert to us just because we're not in the first century. And the way into this is I wanted to, we looked at this painting called Guernica. Can we pop that up? Here we go. Uh, We looked at this painting called Guernica. Guernica was painted in 1937 by Picasso, and it's in response to the bombing of the town Guernica, in which the the, uh, fascists of the day um, invited the the, um, German Air Force to practice a new bombing technique on uh, this town called Guernica. And the painting reveals to people uh, the innocent suffering that's always associated with war. Now, there's a couple of points I want to highlight for us today. Um, Up here, I mean, as you can see, Picasso uses a whole lot of angular imagery. This is not a photograph, right? This is not intended to be CCTV footage of what actually happened at Guernica. It's actually using these angular images to talk about um, the real way that it actually distorts and corrupts human beings. But in particular, he uses these two images. He uses the image of the horse as you can see here, and he also uses the image of um, the bull. And these two animals were uh, well known as part of um, Spanish society. The horse represented Spanish nobility. And as you can see in the middle, it's kind of, it looks like it's been wounded, been gored by the bull of Spanish fascism. So, so Picasso was picking up on these images of these animals or these beasts to talk about the way in which um, uh, they had been involved in the Spanish War, involved in the Spanish War, and have actually reaped destruction on uh, the life of those in Spain. He's not saying that people were attacked by, right, a bull. He's not saying only horses were wounded. Can you see how the symbolism works, right? 
Okay, that's great. In a somewhat dissimilar way, also the book of Revelation picks up the use of animals. And in particular, um, it talks about um, beasts also. Anyone, anyone's like the, the mark of the beast, the beast of Revelation 13, kind of like popularized by every 80s hair band, they ever, you know, and like, you know, early horrors, we're up with that. So, um, so I want to talk a little bit about that today. We are in the book of Revelation. You've got to talk about the beast. You've got to talk about 666, right? Who's with me? It would be like, we've got to face these things squarely. So in the book of Revelation, it talks about um, this, this, this thing, the beast, oh, the, it takes on this mark of 666, which is a very, it's actually 666 is, is the number. And in fact, in Revelation 12 and 13, it talks about two beasts, and it talks about these two beasts in a couple of different ways. One is the military machine of Rome. The other is the economic apparatus that basically that produces the propaganda that says the Roman Empire are operating as if they are like the gods. They are empowered by the gods. And you can see how this works as you kind of look out on the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire at the time spanned from India to England. It's absolutely massive and an unstoppable force that basically gobbled up countries, enslaved people, took over resources. It was seen like an irreversible or irresistible force. And so John picks up these images of the beasts and these to the Roman Empire acting like this, and he's using this from a particular passage in Daniel. So he's picking up images that would have been well known to the people in the first century. The, and the images are from Daniel talk about the way that empires or people organize themselves around um, a whole number of different things, but not around God's wisdom and God's life. And so the result of that is because they're not orientated around God's wisdom and God's life, they eventually fail. They eventually become lifeless and they crumble away. And so while they seem scary at the time, the picture is of calling Rome these two beasts. The picture is that one day they'll actually will fail and it's not going to be an everlasting kingdom. Secondly, it talks about them, um, a person taking the mark of the beast or being forced to taking a mark on the beast on their hand or on their forehead. And that is a direct link back to another Old Testament passage um, the, the, of the Shema in Deuteronomy. In the Shema, so a prayer of loyalty talked about uh, in the Bible, where one um, um, had a Shema on their hand and on their head as a way of saying, all that I do and all that I think about is for the Lord. It's a mark of loyalty. So to take a mark on one's hand or one's head is to actually say, I'm loyal to this. How are we going? We're doing all right? Yeah, okay, cool. And then there is the way that this talks about uh, this number, that the number of this beast is, or the number of this person, um, is 666. And man, there's never been more things written about in the Bible, right? Never has, you know, this is the, this is the uh, verse in the Bible that has spawned a thousand conspiracy theories. And while it's kind of a mystery to us, and it's been like, produced all sorts of books and, you know, kinds of things. It wasn't a mystery to John at all. It wasn't a mystery to John. John knew um, both Hebrew and Greek. And in Hebrew and Greek, letters 
actually also represent numbers. So this is, you know, like, so Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth, A, B, C, you know, in, in Hebrew represents numbers, one, two, three, four. And it's in the same in Greek. And so when you translate Nero Caesar from Greek into Hebrew, the number you get is, guess what number? 666. And it's also, when you translate the Greek uh, word for beast, and you put that into Hebrew, the number is 666. The point, the little word puzzle that John is playing here is wanting to make sure that we understand that these empires, these beasts, are in fact uh, the Roman Empire at work in the world. This is not security footage of something that will, will happen one day in the future. What John is trying to reveal to um, the people of um, Asia Minor is in fact that one day this empire, this Roman empire that seems all vicious and all kind of all powerful, one day this beast will be no more. And so in fact, while scary, and while, again, spawning a whole lot of heavy metal and great black T-shirts of the day, it's actually trying to be a source of comfort for those people in the midst of the Roman Empire. The, the little word puzzle thing, it's called gematria, and it's a very common way of doing little word puzzles, by the way. As a sidebar to that little Bible nerd note, um, there's this, all this like great graffiti that's found in Pompeii lately. If you're a Bible nerd about ancient documents, there's some really great stuff in there. So, for example, I've just got nothing to do with the talk, by the way. That's well prepared <laughs> and well documented. This is the sidebar is um, like part of the writing is that there'll be great political slogans and slang about you know Caligula, go hang yourself. But the, we wouldn't say the word Caligula. They would put his number in there, and you, if you were smart enough, you'd be able to translate it out. There's another great piece in Pompeii. The woman that I love, her number is 432. It's like, I mean, women have never been more objectified, right? But it's an early Tinder, right? It's an early version of social media that you could swipe right on. Anyway, this is a common way of, um, this is a common word puzzle. The point being, back to the talk, and the point being that John is trying to reveal to um, his hearers that while the Roman Empire is a massive empire, while it is uh, striding out across the world and it is all-powerful, while it is out there taking over a huge amount of resources and seems irresistible, it actually doesn't have life in and of itself, and one day it will fall. And you've just got to ask yourself, where is the Roman Empire today? How's that going? You know, the Roman Empire that seemed all-powerful, that in, you know, its whole population was made up of two-thirds of slaves, that drew resources from absolutely the ends of the earth, the Roman Empire today is what you go and visit when you're going to, you know, you pop over to Rome, isn't it? You, you see it in all the, in, in the ruins. Or it exists only as pictures of people in togas in, um, down at the local library or on the Roman Empire Wikipedia page. Where is the Roman Empire today? It's actually no more. And those, so the contrast this picture of this quite scary operation, which was asking or demanding people's loyalty. We have this picture that we talked about in, um, in Revelation 4 and 5, and it's a picture of, in fact, 
a throne scene with God on the throne. Now, we have to remember that heaven is the control room for earth. And you have this amazing picture in contrast to the beast scene of God in heaven ruling. And beside God on the throne is a picture of a slain lamb. The lamb that was slain, but is now alive. It's a picture of the risen Jesus who was crucified by the Roman Empire, but God has raised from uh, the dead. And what is so important about this picture is that it says that the one that the Romans had thought had, that they had killed, the ones that the one who had been conquered by death, is in fact overcome death, and therefore has tied all of human destiny to his destiny. We must never forget that the birth of Jesus is actually not just a miracle kind of birth story of how does a virgin give birth in a stable. It's partly that. That's exciting. But mostly it's about God coming into the full orb of human existence, of taking on human life. And in doing so, God has welded his future to our future. In the resurrection of Jesus, God has actually collected up all of humanity, and now God has at last got skin in the game of the redemption of the world. The one who's overcome death also is the one who says, one day all things will be made new in the same way that he has been made new. Jesus' resurrection becomes the guarantee that one day all of the world will experience resurrection, and one day this throne here will be here. It's the marriage of heaven and earth, of all things being made new, and of God having his home with humanity where everything broken will be made new, where all tears will be wiped away, and sin and pain and death will be no more. The, the vision or the picture of the end of the book of the Bible, that the story of redemption, is not the burning up of earth, it's actually the redemption of earth. And that's all made possible, and that's all made secure through the resurrection of Jesus. Through the resurrection of Jesus, God has tied humanity's future, the world's future, you know, the creation's destiny to God's destiny. In 23rd of June, 2018, um, it was in Thailand. There was a um, football team who were out. There was, it's a Saturday morning. It was... Um, a person's birthday. And so they gathered together, um, as they would usually do, they played football. And as part of the, um, kind of being a part of this team, um, the wild boars, they would um, go into uh, this cave and they would write their names on the wall of this cave. Um, the Thumblock Caves are, are 12 kilometers long, and they um, basically go under this amazing um, ridge line called the Sleeping Mother. Uh, this Saturday morning, um, his, um, this person's birthday, his parents are at home making him a SpongeBob cake as a bit of a joke to embarrass their 17-year-old, which would definitely do the trick. 
Um, this morning, they basically entered into this cave, and they got one kilometer in, and it began raining. The cave got, was, experienced a flash flood, and they couldn't get back out, and so the only thing they could do is actually go deeper into the cave. They got to point, you know, they got to two kilometers into the cave, and they knew that they were completely stuck. And so what they did is they climbed up onto a ridge as part of the cave, and using rocks, they dug out a five-meter shelf, and the 12 boys and their coach jumped up onto the shelf and had to wait in that complete darkness by themselves with the water rising, running out of oxygen. They were completely stuck. They were in an incredibly lethal uh, situation. Little did they know that actually while they were in this cave, um, it, the alarm was raised and they quickly scrambled a team of people to, um, to come in and rescue them. It was one week of being in the cave by themselves in the dark before two UK rescue divers uh, made it in. They um, contacted the boys and then the real problem began, how to get them out, right? These kids, have basically, most of them couldn't swim. None of them have ever experienced uh, scuba diving and certainly none of them have ever experienced scuba diving out of a cave and, you know, with all the panic of trying to get through these really tight spaces to, uh, to get them out. And so they came after came up with a solution. They called in this Australian uh, anaesthetist, uh, Dr. Harry, and he has an, an amazing story around him. And what they decided to do is they um, kitted the kids up, each in wetsuits, and they put a mask on them, and then they heavily sedated each child. And then they tied their hands behind their backs, and then they tied each child to a diver that was tied to a rope, um, and they eventually got them out one by one by one. Their destiny, their rescue, was completely tied to the destiny of the divers getting them out. Jesus has tied his destiny to our destiny. It's not our ability to hang on to the rope. It's not our ability to get ourselves out of a situation that counts. It's actually the person of Jesus. The person of Jesus has come to us where we were as uh, creation, broken, actually running out of oxygen with not many options ready to go. And Jesus has come to us and has tied his destiny uh, to our destiny, and therefore the security of new creation has been guaranteed through the resurrection. And as, I, as we kind of come into land for uh, communion today, I'm just wondering how people are going in terms of their hope tank. As, is it reading E? Is it reading E as we head into, you know, we think about relationships, we think about work, we think about church, we think about our faith. Where is the hope tank meter reading? Are some of us feeling like we're running out? And I just wonder if you're here today and what you need is a fresh experience of God's grace, a fresh reassurance of God's goodness, a fresh understanding that in fact the world is secure because of the resurrection of Jesus. Are there, is there anyone here today who feels just bored, who feels disengaged, disengaged from their own life? And what there needs to be is a fresh sense of that your life matters, what you 
do matters. To the degree that it aligns with what Jesus is doing in the world in terms of bringing about new creation, to the degree that that is aligned with that, what you do is not just oiling the wheels of a machine that's eventually falling off a cliff. In fact, what you're doing is you're participating in the very renewal of creation. And it's a sign forward for all those who are with you that, in fact, we can hope for better things. Maybe you're here today and um, you've got um, a huge amount of responsibility in your workplace, the products you design, the strategies you run, the services um, that you provide. All actually, um, uh, it's all pretty much based on you and your goodness and your creativity. And what you need today is actually a fresh sense of God's presence in your life and a fresh sense that that's not just all up to you that God is with you, that God is for you, and God wants to use your workplace and use what you're doing as a professional to actually point to something new and bigger and tangible, which, of course, is God's renewal in uh, the world. What we're going to do now is we're going to stand. We're going to take communion together. So let's stand. And as you walk and as you pray and as we worship today, my prayer is that we would have something renewed within us in terms of the hope that Jesus has brought into the world. This here, this bread and this wine, this symbolizes the life of Christ, the life that is keeping on going and expanding because of his resurrection. And the invitation today is you take bread and you take wine, it's a a yes to what God is doing in the world. And it's a yes to being a part of that. So I'm going to pray, and then as we worship, and as we take this communion together, there's a simple prayer of saying, come Lord Jesus.